As we continue our time of worship, we'll be turning to the Psalms. Speaking of being thankful, let us look to the Psalm. A Psalm of David. And let me just tell you, um, I'm humbled to serve you as your associate pastor of family ministry, whatever that means, whatever it entails. I'm so happy to be a part of this family. More than anything else, this is a family. And I would challenge you that if you do not feel that family feel like I'm talking about, come talk to me. Let me help you figure out what it is, the missing linchpin, if you will, that is hindering you from feeling like this is your family. Because I can guarantee you, in, in staff meetings, Matt and Kyle and I, we talk about this family dynamic and how we are blessed as a church to have it. This is not normal. But I am so thankful for it. And anything that I can do to help foster and facilitate that, I will. I know Matt will. I know Kyle will. I know the elders will. But let's continue our time of worship and let's talk about Psalm 103. It's a psalm of David and he writes, and I promise not to sing it, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Can I get an amen? Amen. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things. So that your your youth is renewed like the eagle. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for you are worthy of all praise. It is to you and you alone that by him and through him and to him all things were created to his glory. Paul had it right when he penned those words. Let us come this morning expectantly waiting to hear the word that you would speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the message of the gospel that is woven in all of the text. Move on us, Lord, and move us closer to you. It is in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thankfulness can be hard to come by. Circumstances, brokenness, frustration, all get in the way. It can be difficult to see God through the fog. You want to stand firm, knowing God is in control. But you look around and you see chaos. 
why do you give thanks in such a moment? The truth is, life isn't easy. There are challenges. There's pain. There's heartache. Even though our landscape may change, we serve a God who never changes. But we're in our darkest moment. God promised to never leave us or forsake us. When our faith is shaken to its core, our God remains faithful. The world will ebb and flow. This is certain. But when we run with endurance the race set before us, and we fix our eyes on Jesus, we find thanksgiving. Think about the things that I'm thankful for. I got up here up front and just rattled off a ton of them, but I forgot one thing and didn't forget it on purpose. I wanted to move it to the end here. But yesterday was Veterans Day, and I am thankful for our veterans. If you're a veteran, would you please stand for just a moment so we can recognize you? I am thankful, thankful for each and every one of you who have served, those of you who have families who, of, of people who have served, because I know just as much sending your husbands and wives and children away off into service is just as difficult, sometimes even more than going. And one of our uh, most recent veterans who just retired back in uh, uh, around Memorial Day, Johnny Mills, um, he uh, texted me yesterday to let me know, asking, and you got this uh, this via the church email to pray for his dad. Um, his dad, Bill, uh, suffered a heart attack yesterday. Uh, he lives in Liberal, Kansas. They had to airlift him to, um, to Wichita, Kansas. Uh, by the time he got there, they were taking him into surgery. I said, that's when I sent the email last night. He was going into surgery. He did not have surgery because when they got there, they realized that two things had happened. One, he needed more than just a stint. He uh, had, uh, I don't know all of the different things, but one side was 100% blocked, one side was 90% blocked, and the Widowmaker was 60% blocked. So um, thankful, he's good this morning, by the way, he is in stable condition, he is in ICU, but they put him on a non-clotting uh, medicine uh, before he left Liberal to go to Wichita, so he can't have surgery till that passes his system, which will be at least five days. So continue to pray for him as he's in ICU. Uh, he is in good spirits, talked to Johnny this morning. So things are good there. So thank you for continuing to pray for Bill and the Mills family in that. Speaking of the Mills, Bailey is standing back there waiting to take the kids out. They're like, why why don't we get to leave yet? Go, get on, get on out of here. Uh, Be continuing to pray for them. So thank you so much. And I do want to say good morning. And I do want to congratulate you for making it. You have made it because we are at the end of the book of James. James has been nine weeks as we have dove into all of the things that he has had to say. And in that, I will tell you a couple things. First of all, I love the book of James. I love its practical application. But I'm also glad it's only five chapters. Because this book has been in your face. These messages, I promise you, I know you're like, Matt, it's just like one after another after another. I'm just doing what the scripture says. 
And and it is hard sometimes to swallow that pill with those in-your-face commands on how we're supposed to follow Christ. As a matter of fact, part of the reason why we're going a little bit more lighthearted, excuse me, the one Sunday. I didn't bring a water bottle up here with me. Um, The reason why we're going a little bit more lighthearted with our... um, I got three guys. Thanks, guys. You're all awesome. Thanks for serving. (laughs) Boom, just like that. At my command. Um, um, No, one of the reasons why we're going a little bit more lighthearted with our Christmas at the movies is because this book of James has been so intense. And really, after Christmas, I've been looking at the book of Jude. We might as well go from one half-brother of Jesus to the other. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that very much. And um, as we're going to be doing that lighthearted look, I will tell you, it'll still be 100% gospel-centered. In case you're wondering, in case you're like, what, what, what are we doing? How are we doing it? Just something a little bit different. Going to have some fun with it. You'll see as we come. But we are now in the last section of the book of James. Starting in chapter 4, verse 12, we are going to go through the end into 520. And as we're going to be looking at it, our theme for this week is faith last. Faith endures. And really, it comes full circle. And if you've been here since the beginning, you might remember the first week was faith perseveres. Faith perseveres. James from the get-go is challenging the 12 tribes that have been scattered because of persecution, because of oppression, to have a real faith that is on display in everyday real lives of the people. That was the challenge all along. So he started off with, Faith perseveres. Faith perseveres, reminding them, as well as us, that God has saved us, and just like that video said, He will be with us in the mountaintops, in the valleys. He is going to walk with us, and our faith will persevere through those things. He moves from faith perseveres into faith obeys. He has given us His word, and we need to do more than just hear it. We need to do it. We need to obey it, which led to what do we obey? What do we do? Well, faith loves. That was the next one. In obedience, we are going to show our faith in what we do for others and to others. And in what we say to others and for others. It's a reflection of the heart change that happens inside of us when we come to salvation. And we said we need to let Scripture be our standard and we need to let love be our law. Then that moved us into faith acts. And here's where we emphasize real faith. Real faith. And what we will look at even more today, and we made a very obvious point that real is different than fake. Real is different than false. We added a simple but hard question on that week and we said, is your faith genuine? That's another question we're going to ask again today. If it is, it's going to be on display to glorify God. We move from faith acts to faith sacrifices because one of the acts is going to cause us to sacrifice. Our faith creates our works, but our works complete our faith. And those works are going to cost us. They're going to be risky. And we talked about risk the next week. We talked about Abraham. We talked about Rahab. We talked about taking that step of faith to go all in. Or as we started off the entire fall semester, burn the ships. To burn the ships, to move all in. Then James reminds us that real faith speaks. The power of the word, the power found in the word of God, the power power that's in our words. And, And it's in our tongues. And he said, you have to control your tongues because with great power 
comes great responsibility. He said something like that, or maybe Peter Parker did, or maybe Uncle Ben, somebody along those lines. But we need to control our tongues because they can be very destructive. And he gave us lots of illustrations on what that can look like. But our tongues can also be very uplifting. They can be words that we share the word of Christ and the gospel of Christ to, to change people's lives. Just going through that review was hard. I told you. It was quite the in-your-face challenge that we had here. But it didn't stop last week when Pastor Bruce got up here. As a matter of fact, the passage that Pastor Bruce had last week ramped everything up. Because in that passage, you could have honestly done 13 different sermons. Because there are 13 imperative commands. Imperative means not to be ignored. 13 imperative commands that God gives us. And like I said, Pastor Bruce did a knockout job squeezing that into 40 minutes. And, and it challenged me as I sat back there. It was, it was a beautiful thing to be able to just sit with my family and be able to listen. And it challenged me in the idea as he brought it all together, all 13 of those commands to faith submits. We are submissive to the will of God. We lay ourselves down. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to submit to and what we want to be in control of. We give ourselves to Christ. That's what real faith does. The rest of the book, what we're going to do today it really could also be another bunch of sermons. It could be seven different sermons, but it brings us to close at the same place where James started with. It's kind of this full circle. Perseverance, endurance, a lasting faith. And it gives us seven characteristics that a real lasting faith will have. He gives us these seven characteristics. This is what it's going to look like, so let's dive in. And I want to remind you, this could be seven different sermons, so I'm going to do my best to get to the point or we're going to be here a really long time. All right, so the first, first characteristic we're going to look at is this, humility. Humility. A real faith that lasts is humble before our Lord and our God. A real faith that lasts is humble. Let's go to verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James just comes right out and says it. But back then, and my guess is it still happens today, people would make plans plans for their business, plans for, for their life as if they were certainties. And, and they would become hyper-focused on, on getting our strategy and our career moves and, and our desires and, and all these things to work for us and we would forget one thing in all that planning. God. We would forget God. And this was really carrying over from what we talked about last week and this idea of submission. Since the fall of man, people have struggled with submitting to God, thinking that somehow we are in control. But let me tell you this. If you don't get anything else out of today, get this. The Lord our God is sovereign, which means He is in control. He has absolute supreme authority over all, including us, including every breath that we take. We forget who we are and we forget where we rank in the big picture. 
The Lord is sovereign over our life. He's sovereign over death and everything in between. And what James is doing here is he's reminding us that your life is a blip on the screen. We think more highly of our lives than we ought. And we forget who we are actually living for. We're not as big as we think, and our life is ultimately not our own. So we need to understand, James is telling us this, but at the same time, he's not saying, well, just sit back and let God do his thing. You don't have to do anything. Because this is at the end of a book that we already went through of all the different commands that he's given us, all the different things he's told us. He's given us commands and actions and instructions, practicing these things to practically apply to our lives as a follower of Christ, to obey and to follow in submission to the sovereign will of God. Now, when we think about that, it should, it should change the way we plan. It should change the way we live. It should change the way we act. It should change the way we move forward. We should have a radically different mindset in how we approach our lives. So the question is, what is your life all about? Who is your life all about? I know for a lot of people in their jobs, I'm not speaking to anybody in this room. I understand. But we have a tendency to pour all of our everything into our work sacrificing plenty of other things along the way, but we want to pour ourselves into our work, not realizing, or maybe realizing, that you could die today and be replaced tomorrow and nobody would know. Now, we can't do the same thing for our family, but we have that happen at work. I saw a meme this week that, that actually made me chuckle, and unfortunately I probably fall victim to, actually, to it describing me, and it said this, I am humble enough to know that I'm easily replaced, but cocky enough to know it would be a downgrade. <laughs> and, and in that, we, we do that as we approach life. We're like, I've I got to pour all of this into that place of work. But the truth is, where should we be pouring our lives into? What should we be giving our lives to? What should we be working for? What should we be planning for? What are we living for and who are we living for? If we are in full submission to God, in humble submission to God, our mindset should change in answering each and every one of those questions. Our mindset should change as we do that. So characteristic number one is this humility and submission, but that carries over to characteristic number two when it says obedience. Not just humble submission to the will of God, but humble obedience to do His will. Look at verse 17. It says this, So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. A lot of people understand that we are sinners. I hope you do. And that God's grace poured out on us. He died. He sent His Son to die for our sins. That we might have a relationship with Him. A lot of people don't realize this. There are two categories of sin. There's a sin of commission and there's a sin of omission. The sin of commission is doing what God said not to do. And the sin of omission is ignoring what God has said to do. If you're a parent, if you're a kid, or if you've ever been a kid, you get this. You understand this. You were told not to do something, and you can fill in that blank, and you do it anyway. We call that disobedience, and disobedience is sin. You were told to do something, and you choose to ignore it and not. You know what that also is? Disobedience, which is called sin. 
So we see these two different areas of sin, and we like to focus more on the sins of commission than we do omission, because we can see the things that people are doing wrong more than we can see the things that people are choosing to ignore. When someone continually does something against God's word, we have no problem calling it out, although we are becoming a bit more lax as society and lax as churches that call out sin and call it sin. The sin of omission, though, seems to get more of a free pass even than the sins of commission. Even in the church, the things that God has called us to do, but we choose to ignore. The things that have been in these first four and a half chapters that God has called us to do, but we choose to ignore. Go back to it. It's things like take care of the needy, take care of the orphans, take care of the widows, because we don't want to do that because it might get our hands dirty and it's going to cost us. Well, that kind of goes back to that faith sacrifices, that faith risks thing. Because faith that lasts is one that is obedient to the will and the word of God. Are we being obedient to the will and the word of God? Well, that leads us to a third characteristic. What challenges us to do that? Well, that is confidence. Confidence. Looking at the beginning of chapter 5, it says this. Come now, rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries you are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and the corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've stored up treasures in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned... You have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. You might think, well, where does the word confidence come from that? The word confidence comes from that because I want to ask you this question. Are you confident in the justice of God? Are you confident in the justice of God? Because there's a lot of people out there that know that God is merciful. But we forget that God is also just. God is merciful, but God is also just. Are you confident in the justice of God? Because a real faith that lasts will be. You might say, well, why do you say that? Because James says it. James says it right here. And he really tags it back to the end of chapter 4 and this idea that your life is short. And he says, what are you doing with that life? Because it could be gone in an instant. And when it is gone, you will stand before the judge. And there's going to be some explaining to do. There's going to be some questions that are asked. And there's going to be things that we have to do. We have to stand before him. And look who he's talking to here. I'm not sure if you noticed, he switched from brothers and sisters, which he said throughout the entire letter to you rich people. Most of the commentaries that I read actually say he is now reaching outside of the letter to the church and he's talking to people that are doing the oppressing. He's pronouncing judgment on them like a prophet of old would. But the judgment isn't coming down because they have wealth. You know why the judgment's coming down? It's because of what they're doing with their wealth. It's how, how they're using it. And you might ask the same question, well, why did James pause in the middle of this letter, really towards the end, going from talking to the people who were dispersed and oppressed to these rich unbelievers? Well, doing some digging, I found two reasons. Number one, he's reminding the church that the justice of God is coming. His main target people are the oppressed poor. Well, who is doing the oppression? The unbelieving rich. And he's telling them right here, he says, you know what, you might be suffering injustice right now, but justice is coming. 
The second thing we see here is even though the unbelieving rich are the target, he's also telling the believing rich what to do. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not rich. Go to a third world country and recalibrate your thinking. We are the rich that he is talking to here. The wealthy believers hearing, he says, don't do this with your money and with your life. Don't be like them because God is coming to judge the sinful things they have done. And then he lists them out. The first thing was is hoarding wealth. Again, not for having it, but what they are doing with it. He says, yeah, you guys got money. This is sitting there corroding. You've got clothes in the closet that aren't being used. The moth and rust are destroying them. Jesus might have said something about that as well. Why do you have all that stuff? That's what he's asking. What happens if your life is gone tomorrow? Jesus again talks about that in Luke chapter 12. He talks about a parable about a farmer who has a bumper crop and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build more barns. I need to have bigger. I need to have more. And then I'm going to sit back and I'm going to do what? You remember what the parable says? I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink, and I'm going to be merry. In the parable, that guy's life will be demanded of him that night. And he says, now what's going to happen? All that stuff that you had to have. Kind of goes back to that illustration of the hearse with a U-Haul behind it. You can't take it with you. Or uh, maybe you've seen this cartoon strip, a uh, comic strip of the dad and the son standing in front of the storage unit that's completely packed to the gills and the dad's like, son, one day all this is going to be yours. <laughs> what are we going to do with all the stuff we accumulate? And he says, don't store up things on earth that moth and rust will destroy. Instead, store for treasures in heaven. So first thing he talks about is hoarding wealth. Second is, is for cheating workers. For cheating workers, no pay for the poor means no food for the poor. No food for the poor means probably no life for the poor, but all because you wanted to save a penny or two. That's what he's laying out there. Then he says you're also living in self-indulgence. I love this term of fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. That's a powerful picture of a cow gorging itself out in the field, just eating everything it possibly can, completely unaware that tomorrow they're going to be dead. They're going to the slaughterhouse. That, that is the idea that we're getting here. And he says, you know, we have all of this stuff that we're going after, but tomorrow it's going to be useless if we're not here. The result of that self-indulgence is holding back from the poor and oppressing them so you could live your best life now. I'm not going to give to the poor. I'm not going to do these things because I need for me. James says the judge is coming. And when the judge comes, condemnation follows condemnation follows the judge is coming there's a negative aspect to that for the unbelieving but there's a positive one for those who are followers in christ the believers that positive is this he's coming to deliver the faithful as a matter of fact it says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord of armies even though you might be surrounded by injustice even though you might be surrounded by oppression the judge is coming to make all things. God hears and God knows. He is the father to the fatherless. He is the defender of widows. He is the one who will lead the captives free, as it says in Psalm 68. This is our God, and He is sovereign. He is coming. The King is coming. The question is, are you confident in that fact? Can you live with that and understand that? Because if you are, it will change how you plan. It will change how you budget It will change how we respond in every situation because real life endures. Real life, it lasts. Real life is patient. That real faith is patient. As a matter of fact, that's the next characteristic. In the injustice, 
knowing God will do what God's going to do is a matter of patience. Patience in suffering is our next characteristic. Look at verses 7 through 11 in chapter 5. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for his precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord is coming near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of the suffering and patience. See, we count as a blessing those who have endured. You've heard Job's, of it, Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Real faith that lasts is patient. And it's patient in its suffering. I love the fact that, that James uses a farmer here. A farmer waiting for the harvest. Now, um, I'm not sure if any of you guys are, have a garden in your backyard or anything like that. But if you do, you probably also have a sprinkler system that helps water it. Well, back when James was writing, guess what? Technology wasn't great. There wasn't a whole lot of sprinkler systems out there. You know what they had to wait for? Rain. You be patient. God's got this. You're not in control. You knew it, and therefore you just trusted God. So the first thing we need to understand, we need to trust God with what we can't control. You can't control your pain and suffering that people from the outside are doing to you. You can't do a lot of things, even from the inside, that people aren't doing, but it's your own body doing it to you. He says you need to trust God with what you cannot control, but then you also need to honor God with what you can. Because the next part of that verse says, stop complaining about one another. He's saying you may not be able to control some things, and sometimes when we're hurting, don't we immediately complain, and then we complain about others, and we have a little bit of a testy uh, you know, thing going on. And in that, we have to look at it and we have to focus on it and say, wait, we can control something. We can shut our mouth. We, we can do that. You can control your response. You can control your thoughts. You can control the words. You can control your actions. And even tosses at the end, hey, by the way, the judge is at the door. The judge is at the door. He's coming back. Be found faithful with that real faith that is patient in the suffering. So trust him in what you cannot control and honor him with what you can. Then he uses a Job to drive home that point. Now, I've talked to a lot of people that are like, I love the book of Job. And I'm like, I can't agree with that statement. Because the truth of the matter is Job is 42 chapters long. The first five verses, awesome. The last eight, awesome everything in between not awesome awful as a matter of fact not a single one of us in there would want to go through it and he says be using job as an example because if we can trust him just like god trusted him with what he couldn't control we honor with him what we could in that same vein james says something about what we can control he says the fifth characteristic Authenticity in what you say. Authenticity in your speech. Be authentic, trustworthy, genuine. Now, go over to verse 12. It says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that it won't fall under judgment. Now, we covered that pretty well back in James chapter 3, so I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail on it. But let me just tell you, if he mentions it again, it's probably because it's important. So make sure they're being authentic 
in our speech. Sixth characteristic, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Just like we saw earlier that faith is patience, he also uses the same approach with prayer. You'll kind of hear it as he writes it. It says this in verses 13 through 18. If anyone among you is suffering, he should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they're to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. He then prayed again. The sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. Now you may have seen this, but every single one of those verses I read had a single word in it. Pray or prayer. One of those variations of it. Why pray? Why prayer? What's James trying to say? He says, well, you need to pray because God alone can give you patience. God alone can give you that authenticity of speech. He can give you the power of confidence that you need. He can give you the power of obedience that you need. He can give you the power of humility that you need to walk through the pain, to walk through the sorrow, to walk through the suffering. It's like that old hymn, What a Friend I Have in Jesus. Now, if you grew up in the church, you may have sang this along the way, but it says something like this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Too often we don't do it. Actually, that, that continues to go on. It says, have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's what this passage is saying. The passage says, pray when you're suffering. Pray when you are cheerful. Pray with the elders. Now, this is something we could get into a whole other time and get deeper into it because there's a debate about this. But I'm just going to leave it at this. What he's saying is pray. Pray. Pray by yourself. Pray with each other. Pray for each other because God knows that we need it. He says pray for healing. And again, I'm not going to get into this part either because this in itself is a whole other thing. But I will tell you what, I believe in a God of miracles. And I believe that God can heal physically if he chooses to do so. But if he chooses not to do so, let me tell you this. He has given us the ultimate healing through his son, Jesus Christ. Because whether we are healed from this disease or the next one or not, we're all going to die. And when we die, we will stand before that judge. And we will be declared righteous in front of that judge because of Jesus Christ if you've accepted that. If you have put this real faith into practice in your life. That is why he's saying pray. That's what he's talking about here. Just like he used Job for a picture of patience, he uses Elijah for a picture of prayer. And what's he saying about Elijah? He's saying, hey, here's something you need to understand. Elijah prayed in alignment with what what God wanted. He was in alignment with what God wanted. It goes back to that idea of submission. What do you pray for? Do you pray for what you want or do you pray for what God wants? We have to pray for what God wants. We have to make our wants God wants. And that happens because we become closer to God as we grow in righteousness. It's like John the Baptist said in John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. That's where we have to get to. And all those characteristics lead up to our last one. Loving. Be loving towards each other. Listen to verse 19 and 20. 
My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from their error of their ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is a powerful ending to this book. The powerful ending to this book and something we have to talk about as we wrap up this sermon and especially as we wrap up this series. We've talked about it already. This idea of fake faith versus genuine faith. But this passage has quite a bit of discussion in it. Just these two verses. And the question really is raised with this. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Can we be assured of our salvation? Do we have eternal security? The reason why the question comes up in this passage is because of this. It says, if some stray and is brought back, their souls will be saved. That would lead to the assumption that if some stray and are not brought back, what would be the case? Their souls would not be saved. So that leads to this big question. And here's what I need you to know. Eternal security is a certainty. Eternal security is the truth that the Christian salvation is secure for all of eternity. That's when you trust in God, trust in Christ as your Savior, as Lord. When He opens your eyes to your need for Him. When He opens your eyes to to your sin and your need for a Savior. And He changes your heart through being born again in the Spirit. You have a promise from God guaranteeing your inheritance. You are a part of the family of God and you will not lose that spot. However, there's an objective reality here and there's a subjective reality here. Objective means it has verifiable facts. Subjective means it's based on human opinion. Here is the objective reality. If you are viewed by God as saved, you are saved. However, the subjective part is is humans can have a biased and opinionated view of what salvation actually is or what real faith actually is. So that's why I want to take just a few minutes to break down this point because I truly believe it is eternally important. I want to look at what we call the five theses of eternal security. It's going to sound a little bit more professor-like here, but if you hang out in the Calvinistic circles, it might be the P in tulip, which is the perseverance of the saints. It's basically the idea that faith perseveres and faith lasts. Week one, week nine, the bookends to all of our stuff that we've been doing here. And this is what we need to understand. Theses number one, we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, apart from your works. To be justified means to be declared righteous by the grace of God through real faith. How do we know that? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. Romans 3.28 also says this, For if we conclude that a person is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. So, we have those who are justified by grace alone through faith. And those who are justified, number two, will also be glorified. Justification is the beginning of the process where God saves us by grace alone. Glorification is the final step in the process where we are made whole again in heaven. Listen to what it says in Romans 8.30. And I want you to listen to who's doing the work, okay? Because I highlighted specific words in my Bible. Romans 8.30 says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
Who did the work there? God. It's not me. Because if it was me, I would fail. I know it. But God, in His perfect righteousness, in His perfect abilities, He is the one. He takes us through the process from beginning to end by His grace. The third thing is, is this. And this kind of fits into our verse. No one will be glorified who does not continue in the faith. You're like, well, wait, 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 wait. That, 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 that sounds confusing. Well, let's look at that verifiable facts. Let's look at the objective reality here. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, where real perseverance, real faith lasts, and the perseverance of the saints comes in. Now, I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's a big if there. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy and faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 22, You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Going back to what we've been talking about with this real faith in James, as we persevere in the faith, we are proving that we are justified in the first place. That's what he's talking about here. I mean, if you really want to go to it, the objective thought is, is it possible a person never is truly justified by God and only thought they were justified in their own minds? They think from a human perspective they're saved, but from God's perspective they're not. How do we deal with that? How do we balance that? Well, the really good news is this. This It's the fourth part of the thesis. God himself will keep his children from falling away. God himself will keep his children from falling away. That's good news because, again, I can't do it on my own. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8-9 reminds us, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Semicolon. God is faithful. You were called by him in fellowship with Christ, his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will keep his children from falling away. But the question is, is how? That actually brings us back around to our passage, the last two verses we've talked about. God keeps his children by means of his children. God keeps his children by means of his children. This is the focus of our closing verses, but also Hebrews 13, uh, sorry, 3 13 and 14, it says, But encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ, again there's this word, if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Going back to our original verse, our 19 and 20 of James chapter 5, there's two words I want you to see in there. One is whoever, and the other one is sinner. Let me read for you the verses again. It says, My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from their error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Why do I say whoever? And why do I say sinner? Because both of those are humans. 
human beings. A human being brings back another human being from wandering. God is the actor. He's, he's the one that's behind it all, but he's using his agents, you and I, to do his work. A great way to describe it, but not perfect, is the picture of a lumberjack. He's going to go cut down a tree, but he's going to use an axe to do it. The lumberjack is cutting down the tree, but the axe is doing the main work. And so as we look at that, we are called to do his main work. It says, whoever will save, whoever will cover. God uses us to do his work to cover up a multitude of sins. He uses us to do his work to save. And that's important on so many levels. So many things we have to get here. But the big thing I want you to get is this. It's one big word that James uses over and over again, but doesn't use it. And that is community. Community. We need each other. God uses us to speak into the lives of others, to hold them accountable, to drive them towards holiness. And it's also the flip, that they hold us accountable and drive us towards holiness to keep us from wandering or to bring us back. God uses others. God uses us. The thing on our sign over there, it's right there at the top. I can't do life alone. I can't do life alone. God uses us to keep his children to the end. If we are not in community, guess what? Can't do that. We need to share life and challenge each other towards obedience and faithfulness. Bob, you're sitting back there in the back. I get so many text messages from Bob all week long. If you're on his text chain, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's always words of encouragement. It's always words driving us towards holiness and faithfulness and obedience. And there are power, or there is power in those words. We already have learned that. The power of God's spoken word. That power of God's spoken word coming together is God working in us and through us together in this place, in the large group, in the small group. I don't think I need to tell you this because you experienced it already over the last couple of years, but isolation kills. Isolation kills. We get alone with our own thoughts and destructive things happen. Our minds will run. The whole idea behind that deconstruction movement, maybe you've heard of it before within Christianity where they're deconstructing the faith, is people have gotten alone with their own thoughts and somehow thought they were something greater than God. Whole idea behind progressive Christianity as well. Nobody holding anybody accountable to the actual word of God. That we come up with our own things. As a matter of fact, are at the movies that we're going to be doing starting in a couple weeks, four of the five movies deal with isolation and the problems that come with it. You have The Grinch, you have Ebenezer Scrooge, you have Home Alone, and you have It's a Wonderful Life. All four of those that we're going to be looking at are all people who dealt with isolation. The last one, A Christmas Story, because it's a 24-hour marathon on Christmas Eve, and we're going to be doing it on Christmas Eve as well, it deals actually with friendship and the opposite side of it. We're going to be looking at those things. That's not going to be the, the, the foundation of it all, but we will see it play even itself out in real life as we begin to see our real life and our real faith lived. I mean, if it comes right down to something, if it came right down for the entire book to be wrapped up real simple, the book of James, the letter of James, it comes down to three things. One, it's only possible by the grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of this is we live it out because it's an overflow of what Christ did for us. 
The second thing is this. It's played out within the context of the body of Christ. How many times does James say brothers and sisters in this book? Throughout the whole thing, brothers and sisters, that's us together in a community. Faith lived out together, whether we're walking through trials together, we're seeking wisdom together, caring for those in need together, being challenged to become more Christ-like together. It's the idea of iron sharpens iron. The end goal, third thing about this book, is the end goal is to glorify Christ. That is what our life is all about. What if people saw something totally, radically different in our lives than they see in the rest of the world? Unfortunately, is that always the case in Christianity? It's not. That's why James has challenged us to live it out. Live out a life that has been transformed by the power of God. And we we lift him up in it all. Real life. Real faith. That's what this has all been about. If you have it, I challenge you to live it out. If you do not have it, today's the day of repent of your sins. Today is the day to submit to God. And today is the day to give your life to him so you can start living it out. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way you continue to work in each and every one of us. You bring us, you bring us through things to develop us and, and strengthen us and grow us closer to you. You give us the power to persevere. You give us the power to obey. You give us the power to act and to sacrifice and to risk for your glory and not for our own. You give us the power to speak Speak your word into people's lives and help bring them back or bring them to the kingdom of God. God, that is the challenge you've laid out for us, for us to submit to your will, stop chasing after our own, and live for you. In a nutshell, that's what you've called us to do, but it is so difficult. But I'm so thankful for Jesus that we don't have to do it on our own. That we don't have to try harder. We just have to submit to you more. God, my prayer is that you make my wants your wants. You make my plans your plans. And I think that's the same thing that everybody else in here prays as well. God, we want to lift you up. We want to praise you with our our words even this morning, but most of all, our lives every day for the rest of it you give us until the day you bring us to glorification. We pray it all in your name. Amen.